This is The God Show, a conversation about the human spirit, with your host, Pat McMahon. Yes, and on this day in history, I want to introduce you to somebody that hasn't been on the program before, but he's directly associated with uh, a piece of literature, an example of literature that we have talked about many times in many different capacities. Uh, You are asked by some who have reviewed his works to think of Robert Alter as the slingshot-wielding David of biblical scholars. Avi Steinberg in the New York Times wrote that. During five decades as a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, he's fearlessly challenged conventional wisdom about the most studied book in history. First, there was a 1981 book in which Alter argued that the Bible's text is not, as most academics presumed, a hodgepodge, but instead a collage-like anthology in which multiple texts have been woven together with extraordinary artistry. It doesn't sound like the Bible as it's described to us, the Hebrew Bible, at least many of the academics and theologians haven't described it that way, but Robert Alter did through 3,000 pages, three volumes, and 25 years of work. And that brings us together. Robert, welcome to The God Show. I'm so happy to have you here to explain the work that uh, Thomas Jefferson rewrote. A number of people have rewritten in so many different capacities the Bible, and you translated the Hebrew Bible as your life's work. Why did you decide that? Well, basically, dissatisfaction with what was out there. I I think any time you translate a great work of literature that uh, has been translated before, whether it's uh, Dante or um, uh, Flaubert or whoever, you you do it because you're unhappy with with the translations that are available in your language uh, to readers. And in brief, I would say this. We do have a great canonical translation of the Bible, both Testaments, of course. That's the King James Version. Now, I'll say something briefly about the King James Version and then uh, talk about my deep dissatisfaction with the modern versions. The King James Version was produced by a a series of um, a group of... um, learned divines in the early 17th century uh, who um, had a good sense of literary English. I I think that they were deeply connected with the literary culture of their age. And they produced some beautiful prose and at times eloquent poetry, although not always eloquent. And um, that certainly is... uh, one of the reasons why it's been cherished over the ages. Now, there are three things wrong with the King James Version. First, not its fault at all. Uh, it it um, 
is a translation that was done 400 years ago. Our language has changed a lot. Uh, we, many of us do not know what words like forward mean, uh, or, um, uh, well, I, I could uh, spin out the list. Uh, so that's a, a problem because languages change. Second problem is there are many errors in understanding the original, partly because um, uh, Hebrew scholarship among Christian scholars back then was not what it is now. Uh, and uh, there's also a certain bias, which we might come back to later. But uh, now, the, the prose narrative often reads beautifully in the King James Version because they follow the contours of the Hebrew pretty faithfully. I mean, uh, out of a conviction, I think, that if God decided to put the words in this order, we certainly should follow this order. Uh, the poetry at times can be beautiful, but not consistently. This is something readers don't remember. <clears throat> that is, you, you'll have uh, first half of a line in Job, say, which is perfect, and then the second half of the line just loses all rhythm and uh, sticks in 16 syllables where, where there are four syllables in the Hebrew and so forth. Um, now, the modern translations have a wretched sense of English style, even of uh, ordinary idioms in the English language, which is a little hard to understand. These are very learned people, uh, but I think it may have something to do with the specialization of knowledge. While they've been going to places like Harvard and Yale and the University of Chicago to do degrees in biblical studies, or in England, Oxford, and Cambridge, uh, they have not been much in touch with the great poetry and the great prose that's written in, in our own time. But then they also have a uh, fatal commitment to the idea that you have to make everything crystal clear in the Bible. Now, I think that's wrong because uh, the biblical writers themselves often cultivated ambiguities uh, and uh, um, uh, paradoxical statements. So uh, to make everything is clear, that clear is to betray the original by introducing a clarity that isn't there in, in the Hebrew. Can you and offhand... Uh, can you offhand, Robert, excuse me for interrupting, but can you offhand give me an example of one of the ambiguities? Um, yeah. Um, the, the, uh, the biblical writers don't spell out causal connections. They leave us as readers to ponder what they might be. And that's one of the advantages of the style that's called parataxis, which means parallel clauses connected by and. In other words, not subordinate clauses with which, not, not specifications like uh, insofar as, however, and so forth. So in the David story, the last uh, great confrontation between David and his wife, Michal, uh, and they're mutually estranged, uh, 
um, she uh, denounces him for dancing before the ark and exposing himself. And he says, I will do what I want. I know I am king. What you consider to, to be humiliation is an honor for me. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. And then the story ends with this. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, did not have a child to her di- till her dying day. Well, what do we make of that and? That and is very ambiguous. Does it mean, for example, that uh, she and David remain perfectly, uh, completely estranged uh, after this outburst and never had sex again? Does it mean that she's being punished by God for for uh, berating the anointed king? And there are other possibilities. So uh, th- that would be a, an example of cultivated ambiguity. No, I appreciate uh, you giving us an example of that, because for those of us who are not biblical scholars, uh, it's so much easier to understand your life's work that eventually produced not only the 3,000 pages and the three volumes, but also a greater understanding of the biblical poetry and the biblical stories. Do you fault the scholars of the English translations for oversimplifying the Bible? Absolutely. Let me give you one example. Uh, Many of the uh, committees that produced the, 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 there was, I should say, for your listeners, there was a kind of spate of new Bible translations after the Second World War, in the, the, the decades following the Second World War. And these committees make the astonishing assumption that readers cannot understand metaphors. So they take the metaphor in the Hebrew and don't translate it literally, but translate it as what they think the metaphor uh, refers to. For example, when uh, Joseph uh, confronts his brothers the first time they come down to Egypt, and of course he's viceroy of Egypt and they don't recognize him, he says um, to... uh, Let's see, uh, I'm reviewing the, the Hebrew in my head, so I remember the Hebrew, not my translation. Um, uh, to, to see the nakedness of the land you have come. Now, the, uh, the nakedness of the land is a very potent metaphor, because seeing nakedness is the regular biblical idiom, as probably many of your listeners will recognize for a prohibited um, sexual union, like you shall not see your mother's nakedness, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's potent because uh, what the metaphor says is that you've come to spy out things that should not be seen, like a mother's nakedness, and that's outrageous. Your arrant spies and I'm going to punish you. Now, if you look at several of the modern translations, uh, they render it, not everyone, but most of them, 
render it something like this. You've come to spy the weak points in our defense, which is terrible. You know, it takes away the metaphor. It takes away the punch uh, of that sexual image. And it assumes that, that a reader can't figure out what the, the, the nakedness of the land is. Uh, I, I got an email a couple of weeks ago from a, a, a Scottish minister who liked my translation a lot, and he said that he and his wife had been disappointed with previous modern translations. Uh, he said, his wife says, she must be a very smart woman, she said, these translations are bossy translations. <laughs> uh, in other words, they tell you what they think you're supposed to conclude the original means rather than allowing you to figure things out for yourself. But can we only, uh, in your opinion, truly appreciate the full beauty of the Bible by reading your translation of the Hebrew? Well, that, that would be, I think, a little presumptuous. It's okay on this um, program. You're perfectly yeah. <laughs> free to do that. Well, I would say this, that if the um, comparisons are these different, maybe there have been five or six in, by mainstream groups, uh, modern translations of the Bible, I would say for sure, yes, you can't appreciate the, the beauty of the Bible at all in those translations, which are wretched English and betrayals of, of the Hebrew. Um, I think you can uh, appreciate a lot of the beauty of the Bible um, in the King James Version, um, uh, allowing for the fact that there are going to be mistakes along the way and, and that it's a little, um, let's say, uneven in this representation of the beauty. Then I guess I have to say one more thing. Uh, let's take a psalm that many speakers of English know by heart, or virtually by heart, the 23rd psalm. Yes. Now, I am not for a moment going to uh, fault the... the um, uh, the beauty of the King James Version of the 23rd Psalm as poetry. It's, it's really quite lovely. Uh, I would say this, though, uh, in a couple of at a couple of important points in this fairly short psalm, the King James Version misrepresents what goes on in the Hebrew. And I will give you two examples. Thou anointest my head with oil. Okay, most of us remember that. Now that sounds okay, except for anoint, because the Hebrew verb doesn't mean anoint. That, that is, there's a special verb for anoint, which is cognate with uh, the noun that we represent in English as Messiah, which means the anointed one. But... Um, uh, the verb that's used here, and I should say this, that that verb to anoint is uh, restricted to the consecration of priests and to the um, consecration of, of kings when they assume the throne. That is, in, in Hebrew, 
biblical Hebrew, you don't say uh, he was crowned, you say he was anointed, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the verb that's used here is a verb that means to make luxuriant. In other words, it's a very sensual verb. And uh, it has to do with the body. That is, in in the biblical world, as in the Odyssey, rubbing yourself or having someone rub you with virgin olive oil is part of the good life. It's like going into the body shop in our era. Uh, So if you say, thou anointest my head with oil, you're suggesting something sacral or something messianic about the act where it's simply uh, the good life here and now. And then uh, to, to complete that thought, at the very end of the psalm, you have, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, which of course sounds grand, but the Hebrew does not say forever. It says literally for a length of days, which to get it into idiomatic English, I translate for many long days. So what's the difference between that? If you say, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, then it means the, the, the big house up in the sky, heaven, which is not part of the world view of the psalmist or of uh, any of the, the biblical writers with the possible exception of Daniel at the, the end of the biblical period. So uh, what the, the, if you say, rather, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord for many long days, what uh, the speaker is saying is not an ascension to heaven, but I'm going to really enjoy hanging out here in the temple precincts, that's the house of the Lord, and in listening to the Levites sing and the music of the accompanying orchestra and participating in these moving sacrificial rites presided over by priests. It's a very different picture that you draw uh, in your uh, translation. A very different portrait. Robert Alter uh, from Cal Berkeley, a translator of the Hebrew Bible into three remarkable volumes. Uh, And having read some of the examples that you have offered of the differences in metaphorical language uh, and the translations that you've provided, uh, one of the things that consistently seemed to come up, at least as far as uh, my interpretation is concerned, is it seemed to me that with the number of, as you just said, sensual examples of speech and descriptive alliteration uh, that you offered in your translation, that those things that were not available in the King James Bible, it seemed to me that some of those people who were doing the translations, the, the, the other folks uh, in the world of uh, translation uh, that uh, differed from you, differed because it appeared as if they were censoring some of the more sensual elements of the scriptures. Yeah, now I think that the the censoring was not conscious, but what it amounts to is this. Uh, they were, of course, devout Christians. 
and I'm not quarreling with anybody's uh, privilege to, to be a believing Christian. So, uh, first, they didn't distinguish, which I think is important to do, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they tended to assume without much questioning that the Bible is um, a vehicle of, at every point, of theological um, uh, truth. So they tended to translate concrete terms into more abstract theological terms. But here's something that has interested me in uh, reader response to, to what I've done. I wasn't aiming at a specific audience, whether Jewish or Christian or secular. I just wanted to get it right, which is what every translator ought to do. And I've gotten a lot of fan mail. Of course, people with with email fan mail comes fast and furious these days from uh, Christian clergymen of all sorts, Methodist, Presbyterian, uh, um, from uh, a church organist, from an Episcopalian nun, and so forth. And they're all very enthusiastic about what, what I've done because I think that as believing Christians, they would like to get a better access to the feel and the meaning and maybe the stylistic texture of the Hebrew. There are those who have long considered uh, the King James Bible to be, and I quote many of them, to be an English masterpiece. Do you think mm -hmm. of it? Do you think of it as a flawed masterpiece? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, but one of my things, as you are probably aware, I, I was a literary scholar before I got into the Bible, and I remain a literary scholar. I would say that, that even with the flaws, one test of its being a masterpiece is that it changed the shape of literary English for generations to come. That is, you wouldn't get the, the, um, uh, the prose of Herman Melville uh, or of Hemingway uh, or uh, the, the, the poetry uh, of um, uh, Emily Dickinson, if you didn't have the King James Version. Well, that is high praise indeed, uh, particularly for someone who has not just translated uh, among the world's most read uh, pieces of written material, but... Uh, but who has looked at not only every word, but every syllable, every, uh, every suggestion that would be considered um, a possible difference in the translation from one language to another, changing perhaps even also the meaning uh, and the intent of the author. Uh, mm -hmm. Robert Alter has spent... He's 25 years now uh, translating the Hebrew Bible. Uh, can you explain to me the many contradictory stories in the Bible, having scanned it 
for all these two and a half decades. Ah, yes, the contradictory says that that's a big headache. Um, look, the uh, lots of parts of the Bible, not every single book, were uh, assembled from different parallel sources. Obviously, this is not true of the book of Ruth or of, or of Esther or of Ecclesiastes, but it certainly is, is true uh, of um, the um, five books of Moses and uh, much in the former prophets. So I don't want to make excessive claims for uh, the unity of uh, the redacted text that we have. I'm using redacted in the, the sense biblical scholarship uses, not in the sense that, that the CIA uses it. Uh, and um, uh, I, in other words, it's a drawing together uh, of different pieces of text. Now, sometimes this works beautifully, and I'll give you one example where I think the introduction of seemingly contradictory sources is wonderfully effective. At the beginning of the Saul story, um, Saul is told that, that um, he's going to meet a wandering band of ecstatics called prophets, and he will join in with them and um, uh, be seized with ecstasy. And then the prophet Samuel says to him, and you will become uh, another man. So this is what happens. And at the end of the story, uh, you, you have, this is, this is a story that shows his radical transformation from a, a um, uh, a farmer's son to a king. Uh, at the end of the story, w w when he, he uh, 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 jumps about in ecstasy w with these wandering prophets, uh, the story concludes, uh, therefore, it is said today, is Saul two among the prophets? Now, there seems to have been uh, a proverbial phrase is sold to among the prophets. It's a little bit li like um, uh, a bull in a, a china shop. In other words, uh, Saul is not supposed to be a prophet, but is sold to among the prophets. Now, we go all the way to the end of the Saul story when he's basically been divested uh, of his right to kingship by the the angry prophet Saul, and um, uh, he takes his, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel, surrounded by other lesser prophets, takes his stance uh, on the hilltop town, which is um, Samuel's hometown, and Saul sends three different messengers uh, uh, to uh, talk to um, Samuel, and each one of them is zapped by, uh, by some kind of powerful spirit uh, and falls away in retreat. So then Saul goes himself 
And he also is zapped. And the result of his being zapped is, is that he rolls around on the ground all night long, tearing off his clothing, which is divestiture of kingship. And then the story ends just like the first story. Is Saul to among the prophets? Well, uh, a, um, a skeptic with no imagination would say, there's an outright contradiction here, and somebody has done a bad job of editing, has put together two sources that have two different stories about Saul among the prophets, and they make no sense together. But if you look at their placement, they're beautiful bookends to the Saul story. That is, at the beginning, he falls among the prophets, is seized with ecstasy, and becomes another man, a king, instead of an ordinary man. At the end of the story, he again falls among the prophets, is seized with ecstasy, and is reduced to a, a naked figure rolling around on the ground. So this is the divestment from kingship. So you see, although there's a contradiction here, the contradiction works beautifully in, in defining the story at its beginning and at its end. Let me hasten to add that it isn't always so neat, that there, there is certainly uh, parallel contradictory versions where it's hard to make out why the, the contradiction is there. For example, um, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, uh, and at one moment in the text, it's Ishmaelite merchants who come along and pick him up. And the next moment in the text, it is Midianite uh, uh, merchants. And it's hard to resolve that. Why do you think those things happen? Well, since many of the books of the Bible, as I said before, not all of them, are assembled from multiple sources, in some cases, this assembling is done with very artful purposes in, in the soul among the prophets. And in other cases, it seems that whoever put the text together just had a, a, an overriding sense that he couldn't leave out one of the two versions, even if the two versions together don't quite fit. He may have needed an editor. That's right. The editor needs, you know, the old, uh, so who, who w will guard the guardian? So who, who will edit the editor? <laughs> I have been reading examples of uh, your translation, and, uh, I, and I began to wonder, with the work that you began 25 years ago, that evolved into the 3,000 pages and the three volumes of the Hebrew Bible translated by Robert Alter, I wondered through many of my readings if from the time you began this monumental effort, was there one passage that you came upon in the original Hebrew that you were in awe of? as a piece of literature? I think there were quite a few passages, both in the 
prose narrative and in the poetry. I would say, in terms of the poetry, uh, I have two choices, very different kinds of poetry. The Book of Job. The poetry of the Book of Job is amazing. It certainly is among the, the, the greatest poetry that's come down to us out of the, the whole ancient world, including the Greeks. Uh, and, and I did stand in awe of, of it, as, or sat in awe, since I sit while I write, uh, as I was translating. And I kept saying to myself, can I really be up to this? Can I get something in English that, that conveys anything near like the power, uh, the, the, the rhythmic drive, the uh, uh, metaphoric brilliance of the Hebrew? And I think, to be honest, uh, not quite, but I had a feeling in many that I had gotten closer th than my predecessors. And in terms of the, the narrative, well, greatness is all over the place. I mean, I, I am in awe of uh, the entire Jacob-Joseph story, especially when you look at Jacob. And there's nothing else like this in, in uh, ancient literature. And you see this brilliant writer tracking a human life from adolescence to uh, the decrepitude of extreme old age, and something similar with David, too. Uh, we're doing this program not for biblical scholars, but for the people, uh, and I think that probably we're talking about the vast majority of people in our audience uh, around the world who have been resistant to really studying the scriptures because of the difficulty in the process of reading. Uh, it's not the easiest read in the world. And yet when you hear about the Hebrew Bible being translated into descriptive language and poetry, you may decide to give it another chance because there's some really remarkable literature here. A number of people, Robert, uh, who have uh, been critical of time spent reading the Bible have said that they are hesitant to even get into it because of the many translations that have altered the substance of the Bible, uh, Aramaic and Greek and on and on and on into mm -hmm. English and King James. Is it a watered-down book? No, I don't think it's watered down because we still have the original. And with whatever success, and I don't claim that in every instance I'm totally successful, I've tried to get back to the original and convey it in English. Um, and as far as all these other translations go, uh, let me just say this. The modern translations, mostly I just don't look at, or I glance at them after I've finished a passage to see maybe there's one word here or there where they've come up with a better solution 
than I have, and usually they don't. Um, with um, uh, now, w- w- what I would say is this: that if you can remain faithful to the concreteness of the, the Hebrew, you can actually make it more readable. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the book that is traditionally in English been called Ecclesiastes, which is a big mouthful, uh, and uh, biblical scholars today, like people who read it in the Hebrew, call that book Kohelet, which is the Hebrew designation, it's probably not a name, of the, the speaker uh, of the poem. So he begins famously in the, the, the King James Version by saying, vanity of vanities, uh, everything is vanity. Now, that fo- probably follows the Vulgate, that is the old Latin translation. Yes. But it's, it's an abstraction. And it's an abstraction, actually, that might be a tad confusing to readers. First of all, when we say vanity today, we tend to mean uh, the, the woman who, who, who is uh, uh, spending a lot of time in front of a mirror putting on makeup. Uh, and, of course, it doesn't mean that. The, the, the King James Version tended to, to mean um, uh, something like, and emptiness, futility, which is roughly what the Hebrew indicates, but only roughly. Why? Because this is another instance, going all the way back 400 years, to substituting for a metaphor what the metaphor um, refers to. And what does the, the, the Hebrew say? It says, uh, Miris breath. All is mere breath. So that's a very concrete image, which stands in for, for uh, an abstraction. And you get the sense of the insubstantiality of everything, that, that it's just breath, you can't hold it in your hand, you can't see it except on a cold day, the, a little puff of vapor, and then it dissipates us. That's very powerful, and I think it's actually more accessible to readers than um, vanity of vanities. Or, or again, uh, that phrase is paired a little further down in the same chapter of Ecclesiastes with what the King James renders as vexation of spirit. Okay, both those words are dead wrong. Why? Vexation, they misconstrued the Hebrew word. They thought that it derived from a noun that means evil. And then spirit, and I'll explain in a minute why that's wrong. It's, um, there's this, as in quite a few languages, there's a single word that can mean spirit, can mean breath or wind, and can also, uh, okay, that, that's enough, breath or wind. Now, I think, uh, I'm convinced actually, I don't just think, that w- this is a, an extraordinary metaphor. That is, the first word that, that's 
mistranslated vexation comes from a, a verbal root in Hebrew that means to herd, like to herd animals, which would have been a very understandable image in this agrarian culture, right? The second word, I think, means wind, and you put the two together, and you get herding the wind. Now, that's a little bit like, well, it's a step beyond, like our um, uh, expression, herding cats. You know, you can't herd cats because you can't keep them together in a herd. Uh, well, the wind is even more impossible to herd. So herding the wind uh, gives you a sense of futility in the most concrete way possible through the metaphor. And that's why I think it's so important to preserve the metaphors of the Hebrew. And my feeling is this actually makes the Bible more readable rather than less. And you're giving us reason after reason after reason for going back and reviewing what we thought was there to begin with. And you've given right. a totally different interpretation of. But one thing I don't think that most of us really concentrate on, when we see the New York Times list of the best-selling books uh, in contemporary times, uh, the author is always followed uh, following the title. Uh, and, right. and yet, I don't know that any of us perhaps with the exception of you having spent all this time examining the Hebrew Bible word for word, how many people wrote the Old Testament? Oh, I would say many dozens, maybe even a, a couple of hundred. Because look, uh, you, um, well, maybe let's say uh, quite a few dozens. That is, there are, are um, okay, the five books of Moses, by scholarly consensus, since really the late 18th, early 19th century, is woven together out of four primary sources. The Elohistic source, the one that uses Elohim as the name for God. The J source, the one that uses Yahweh as, as a name for God. The priestly source, and then Deuteronomy, which is apart from the other four. But in addition to that, as you read through the five books of Moses, you find little insets, some of them rather strange, which don't belong to any of those four sources. So just in the, in the five books alone, you may have the presence uh, of 15, 16, 20 authors. Uh, and and then uh, similar things are true in the narrative books that, that uh, follow. And even uh, in the prophets, for example, Isaiah, uh, my favorite prophet. Now, Isaiah lived um, uh, toward the end uh, of uh, the, the, um, uh, the first kingdom of Judah, uh, that is before it's destruction by the, the Babylonians, say, the, uh, the very late 7th century before the Christian era, okay? Um, and uh, his prophecies 
run through from chapter 1 through chapter 29. There are a total of 66 chapters. But even in those 39 chapters, there are clearly sections that somebody else wrote that were inserted by, by the editor. You see, the, a book in ancient Israel was a kind of open-ended thing. It, it isn't like a book printed and bound with a copyright uh, on the, the inside front page. Um, so you could add things uh, to the, you could stick a scroll within the scroll or stick a short passage within your version of the scroll. So for example, there's, I think it's chapter 14 is about the death of the king of Babylonia. And the king of Babylonia was after the lifetime of um, uh, Isaiah. So you have a few prophets under that roof of Isaiah, the son of Amos, chapters 1 through 39. Then, uh, by almost unanimous scholarly view, uh, 40, chapters 40 through 55 were written by another prophet who was in the Babylonian exile, probably a generation or even two generations after the original Isaiah, and uh, who prophesied the return from Babylonian exile. Then there's 56 through 66, which in terms of a lot of the subject matter seems to be written by somebody who was already back in the kingdom of Judah after the Cyrus authorized the return from uh, exile. So in, in Isaiah alone, you, you probably conservatively, there are a dozen different people, maybe 15 di different people whose writings are, are put together. Which explains certainly a great deal of the confusion of those of us who have attempted uh, to get through at least passages of the Bible uh, and, right. and, and have given up. Uh, by the way, please let me acknowledge the fact that Robert Alter, the translator of uh, what eventually evolved into the three volumes of the Hebrew Bible translated. Uh, either, Robert, with respect, uh, you are extremely frugal and decided never to buy or learn how to operate a computer, or you just, oh, no, no, that's not... <laughs> you just decided to write the entire thing by hand, right? Well, yeah, but I do own a computer, uh, and... Uh, and I type letters of recommendation and, of course, lots of email. I actually took typing in high school, and it's a great skill. <laughs> but <laughs> I recommend it. I, uh, every young person should learn typing. But I but, wanted people to know that you, you have written with a specific kind of pencil on lined paper. That's right. Because somehow or other, although I typed well, back in the, the era when we were using typewriters before computers, I found that, that when I was writing for publication, I could, it's a, almost a craft thing. Uh, I'd take this special um, uh, pencil, it's a cross mechanical pencil, I think they should give me a lifetime supply because I'm plugging them. Uh, and uh, I would sit with, with the um, narrow line paper 
and it's almost a, a, a physical thing that, that I, I can feel a connection between my moving hand, my body, uh, and the words that I was putting down in pencil on the page. And then what I would do, this is a, a little strange perhaps, uh, I, didn't, I never used drafts. I have one draft which I slightly revise because when I'm writing or translating, I ponder a, a sentence, a clause, I put it down, uh, I may erase a couple of words, I'll stick in an extra phrase uh, with a little carrot and so forth, uh, and then it's finished. So I, I found this uh, uh, satisfying and um, effective way to write. So I, I did the whole thing, as you say, with a mechanical pencil and lined paper. And for those of us who do exactly the same thing, I thank you, sir. Uh, and I hope that any academic that gave me a D on my report cards will probably get some value out of the fact that there are others who decide not to type everything. Uh, folks right. like Robert Alter, for example. By the way, before we run out of time, we've talked about the King James Bible. You've translated the Hebrew Bible where does the Catholic Bible, the Douay version of the Bible, fit in? Well, I've mostly looked at, not at the Douay uh, Catholic version, but, but the New Jerusalem Bible, which you probably know, that, yes. that's more recent. And when I first read sections of it years ago, I thought, well, this is a, an improvement on the the Protestant and Jewish ones. But as I go back and look at it, every once in a while, uh, I'll come across a line. They really nailed it there, the, the, those Catholics. But then um, a lot of it has the same faults that, that I was decrying earlier in our conversation as, as the, the other translations by committee. You are considered to be, uh, and I get to say this, you don't have to, considered to be the academic resource on the Hebrew Bible as translated by you, Robert Alter. But theologically now, you must have arrived at some kind of conclusion, either as a practicing Jew or on behalf of the people who have the King James Bible, the Catholic Bible. Is this... Is this in any form inspired by God? Well, okay. My uh, sense is this. If you say in any form, it could well be, and it's a matter of the, the decision of the believer. In, other, in any form, all the evidence is that this is the work of human hands, that it uses human language. It uses the artifices of fine narrative prose and of poetry. So in all those respects, it's human. Now, this does not exclude the possibility that these human beings could be a kind of vehicle for divine inspiration. That, that as much as they 
they put their human imagination, human intelligence into the writing. Uh, There's some uh, nucleus of the writing that came to them from a a greater power. That's a hard decision for me to make. But what I would say is is this, to slightly reframe the question. Um, I've sometimes been asked, uh, well, how can you talk about literary artistry in the Bible when the Bible is a a religious book. Isn't that a contradiction? And this is a fundamental perception that I have. It's not a contradiction. That is, for reasons that we cannot fathom, these Hebrew writers working anywhere from 2,500 to 3,000 years ago give or take a, a few centuries, um, produce, among them were many writers of genius. And of course, their impetus was religious. That is, they wanted to convey in story and in poem, and of course in, in legislature too, this radical new monotheistic vision of God and creation and history, and so forth. But they chose to do it through a highly sophisticated, often quite brilliant literary vehicle, whether it was in poetry or in narrative. And my contention is that a reader who is primarily seeking religious insight, theological truth in the Bible, will get a much more nuanced, fine-tuned, complex sense of what those religious truths might be by getting a a better feel for the literary vehicle in which they're conveyed. Here's the challenge, Robert. We have slightly more than a minute left. And so I ask you now, for the inspiration of Alter, and give our audience a very brief review of your version of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Well, my first take on on Adam and Eve is there is no Adam in the Garden of Eden. That is, he's always referred to in Hebrew as the Adam, which makes it not a name. But Adam means person or human being. Uh, and that already uh, puts things in a different light. Like uh, in the first version of creation, male and female created he them, that's the King James Version. Uh, in the image of God, he created man, but it doesn't say man. It says the Adam, the human being, which, especially for the feminists among your uh, listeners, that means that Adam, although it's uh, grammatically masculine, it doesn't refer just to the male of the species. And with 30 seconds to go, tell us, please, Robert, was there an Eve? Oh, yeah. Uh, I I mean, I'm not saying there was an Eve historically, but but certainly there's an Eve uh, um, in the story and the fact that he needs her and that they cling to each other and become one flesh is very important. 
Well, it's certainly important to us now, uh, <laughs> with all of this time having been passed, regardless of how it all began, here we are, sitting in the studios of the Star Worldwide Networks in Phoenix, Arizona, broadcasting to the world about the most important book ever written, translated by Robert Alter into three phenomenal volumes, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, and see if you don't feel a little differently about some of the stories once you take a look at it yourself. But remember where you found out about it on The God Show.